can't get enough of football? Chance, goal, superhuman, special, special goal. Incredible, just incredible. Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders, your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football from the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction! Greetings wherever you're listening to this. This is Football Insiders, the home of Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. And this is Benita Merciatis. Today, we're speaking with someone on the other side of the world who's written a book called Support Your Local League. It's Anthony Sutton. And although he lives in England now and he is an Englishman with a very proper English accent, he has spent 25 years living and working in Southeast Asia. His book, Support Your Local League, is a lovely read with the 2014 World Cup as a backdrop. It's part travelogue, part about the culture, part about the politics, and also, of course, about the football in four Southeast Asian countries, predominantly Indonesia, but also Singapore, Malaysia and Thailand. So without any further ado, let's get into our next Football Insiders podcast, grab a cup of coffee and let's have a chat with Anthony. Anthony, welcome all the way from Newark between Nottingham and Lincoln in England. Yes, how are we doing? It's a bit cold and grey here at the moment. It's half past eight in the morning, but um, I'm sure the sun will come out later on. Uh, well, it's been a, a rare fine day in Sydney today. It doesn't always happen like that, but it has today, so that makes a nice change. Um, just to, I guess to start off with, we've been asking everyone this, but it, I guess it's of even more interest to us here in Australia right? because we see the news coming out of England. How has the coronavirus shutdown and everything that's gone on been for you and your and people that you're with? Well, I'm kind of – it's not really impacting me, for, to be honest, because um, – I work from home anyway, so you know um, I'm, I'm furloughed now. I'm not working, but I'm I work from home, so I'm used to sitting around the house all day doing not much anyway. So the biggest impact is not being able to go to football, not go to the pub, and um, not go back to Indonesia to see my family. But apart from that, very little difference to my my way of living, unfortunately. Well, fortunately, I suppose compared to many people. So when you say you can't go back and see your family, is there any? line of sight on when that might happen or when you'd be allowed to travel? Um, Indonesia's still shut, so such foreigners. And um, if I had the permanent residency, which I had before, I could go, not a problem. But um, I didn't, so I've been going back on tourist visas now, and um, unfortunately they're not letting tourists in, so that's going to be a while, yeah, yeah. I think. But Indonesia's slowly opening yeah. up again, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll see how it goes too. I mean, it's a bit like here. I, I have a friend who's in England who yeah. um, hasn't had his permanent residency expired uh, and he's had to wait that out waiting to get a new visa in order to come back to Australia, which is where he actually lives. So it's just mm-hmm. one of those unfortunate things. I anyway, to, to move on, um, you're, you're, you're the author of Support Your Local League, um, which has been out since uh, 2018. Um, and you're also writing another book at the moment, which is the life and or the, the coaching times of Steve Darby, who's very well known in this part of the world. But let's sort of look at your your support your local league first and how that came about. Um, I was fascinated when I read it through the first time, and and I, I read each of the books several times. But um, <laughs> the fact that I, I because you had sort of pitched the book to me and I had an idea of what it was about, I didn't realise that you had spent so much time in Australia. Um, and so when you first came here, what made you want to go and see football rather than do what 
most other people do and go to Bondi Beach or Manly Beach or wherever. <laughs> I, I left England for a year, I thought. That was my plan, 12 months. And um, I got to see some games in England before I left. I thought, right, the first thing I was doing in, 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 in Australia is, um, you know, it seemed a natural thing to do to go to, to go to the newsagent, find out what magazines or papers there were about local football, and then get down to travel at the tourist aid office and find out, well, how do I get to this place? Where is it? Can you show me on the map, please? And that just seemed natural to me. You know, um, Bondi Beach is always going to be there. The Harbour Bridge is always going to be there. But St. George against Marconi is only twice a season, so I wanted to get St. George Marconi. There was a couple of games on in Sydney that day, I think, and... Um, but that was the easiest game to get, easiest ground to get to. So I was living, I was staying with my brother in in Eagles Cliff, I think it is, and just a short ride on the train down to Rockdale. That was nineteen eighty seven. Oh, that's quite some time. So the the NSL at that time was ten or getting into its eleventh year. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. It was great. Um, what are your memories of watching football then in Australia? Um. Well, I started off going to games by myself and I moved to Brisbane. I, I watched some um, Queensland State League games in Brisbane as well. The first big game, I suppose you, you call it, was um, when the Socceroos played Gothenburg at Parramatta. And I travelled out from King's Cross to the game. I was staying in the cross by then. And it, it was all Swedes. There were Swedes everywhere to attend this game. It was a great atmosphere inside the ground. And then um, I went to a few more St. George games that season. And I, I returned to England because of my visa, and then returned back to Australia a year or so later and started following St. George in more, um, to more games home in a way. And there was a little group of us who were going to see St. George games, Australian lads and me and a couple of others. And it was just such a buzz going to these games, such a laugh. And it was a massive learning curve. I mean, I became an expert on the Balkans two or three years before, before it imploded there because of um, Australian football. Yeah, well, some of us were actually born into that <laughs> that Balkan environment of Australian football. What are, who are you? Which players do you remember the most, and which stand out? Well, the first game I saw, um, well, you know, obviously when you're watching a new game and new players, you don't, you, you don't, you have no idea. You have got a blank sheet. But one guy who stood out for me was um, Frank Farina, who had quite a good career. And then um, when I started to go more and more St George games, the goalkeeper John Phelan. And, you know, I yep. thought he was excellent. You know, when you, come, when you see teenagers coming through with that much confidence that he had, I thought he was a great keeper. He ended up playing in England for many, many years. He did, yeah. He got a bit of a surprise, actually, because um, he was playing for Cambridge United and I was back in England. So I went to see Burnley versus Cambridge United wearing my St. George shirt, which I had from Andy Harper after the last game of the season. And um, <laughs> John Fyland got off the bus at, at Burnley. I was like, hello, mate, remember me? He goes, oh, Jesus, not you guys. <laughs> <laughs> because, um, they'd actually give it, he'd give me a lift back from Wollongong after one game which got a bit tasty a bit leery and um, he'd give me a lift back after that game so we had a bit of a chat and it, the look on his face when he saw me he goes oh you guys are nutters and he started talking about you know friends of mine and you know incidents following St George so it was great to see him so it was great to see him have a good career in England as well yeah, I mean, that's, that's some names you've dropped there. Andy Harper, Frank Farina, John Filan. That's that's quite a nice little group there. Um, from Australia, you moved over to Southeast Asia. I had a little spell in Germany, then I moved to Southeast Asia in um, 1994 and I stayed in Thailand for about seven or eight years. Yeah, and then all up you've spent about 25 years there. Yeah. So what, what made you make that move? Where did you live? Um, you know, for people who haven't read the book, um, 
support your local league is, I mean, Anthony is very steeped in in fan culture, as as are many people. But of course, from that deep and abiding love of of your club and your team, that that uh, perhaps is reminiscent of um, other Arsenal supporters we've heard from. <laughs> um, but so, you know, what what drew you to Southeast Asia, and what made you stay there for so long? Um. After Australia, I went back to, I mean, I kind of had to leave Australia. I burnt a few boats there, burnt a few bridges. Um, I went to Germany for a bit, but I hadn't got a nation out of my, out of my system. I mean, I was always, I had a job in, in Germany and I was working casual jobs in England. And one song kept going from my mind. It was um, K-San by Cole Chisel. And that kind of like, and also, the, you know, the, the Bow River song as well, about, you know, I feel that water licking up my feet again. And those songs were like, Actually, it was a magnet to get me back over to that part of the world, if not Australia, but certainly Southeast Asia. And I just felt that I wasn't finished with, South, with Southeast Asia. So I moved to Thailand for in about 93, 94 and did some English teaching there. I didn't really get involved in any local football at the time. I didn't really have the time and the money. But um, after Thailand, um, I moved to Bangladesh and I didn't get involved in football there either. But it was only really when I got to Indonesia that I was, thought, you know, I'm getting married now, I better find something to do to keep me at the pub. So I hit on this idea about going to follow in Indonesian football. And and how I mean what how did that sort of come to pass? I mean you was your fam the the family that you married into into football as well or was it something that you did by yourself or you know how how did that grow and how did you decide on which team you're going to follow? And- well, I was living out in the boonies, uh, um, you know, about a couple, an hour or so outside of Jakarta. And there was not much in the way of nightlife near where I, where I was living. So I, I needed something basically to keep me busy and in my new married life. Um, I was only had a teaching, so I was like finishing work early and had to wait for a long time for the wife to come home. And I thought, right, I've always liked writing, I'll take it writing. And the thing is, you know, what are you going to write about? So the obvious thing was football, but you know, if you Google football, right, you're not going to, you know, you get millions and millions of choices. So I whittled it down and I thought, I know what, Indonesian football. And I, I, I did a Google and there's very, very little about Indonesian football in English. I thought, good, I write about that. So I told the missus and she was like, are you crazy? Are you nuts? <laughs> Indonesian football had a very bad reputation at the time. And I thought, I like this. I like bad reputations. So that was it. It's basically something to keep me out of the bum and keep me busy. Um, went to my first game in 2006, started a Jakarta Casual blog in 2006, and everything went downhill from there. Um, when you say it had a bad reputation, I mean, some might argue that it still does, and I'm not meaning on the park, but off, <laughs> off the park. I mean, were you conscious of that? Were you conscious that um, off the park Indonesia what? did have an extraordinarily bad reputation or was that not something that entered into you the the usual psyche of the usual fan i didn't care <laughs> um, right. yeah. I, knew, I knew about it it's kind of quite you know i grew up in england in the 70s and the 80s um so i wasn't really worried by that um i moved to i spent one year in surabaya and my girlfriend at the time who became my wife later i said oh good i want to go see the surabaya football team play she's like no no don't 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 do that don't do that because the person buyer fans had the worst reputation of the lot. Um, so I was aware of it from early on. I mean, back in 1987, on my way to Australia for the first time, 
I was in a little street store in Jogjakarta in, in Indonesia, and I got talking to this guy, and he was talking about how whenever Surabaya fans came to Jogjakarta, there's always all this fighting and everything. So that kind of appealed to me. You know, I've been through punk, I've been through skinhead, I've been through football in England, and um, the idea of being a little bit living in that being in that kind of environment didn't really concern me. I was like, bring it on, love it. Who more just more experience to add on add to things? What what football team did you follow in Indonesia? I didn't. Um, I just can't see anybody because um, you know the, I, I can't be doing this. Turning. I mean, Saint George was different, I think, because it was fairly close to where I lived, and um, it was my first time outside of England following football. But, but by the time I got to Indonesia, it's like, well, I can't be for sports supporting Arsenal, supporting this, supporting that. Just like. When once I knew, once I was writing about it, you know, I didn't want to have the bring the bias of supporting one particular team to it. I wanted to be neutral, and I thought if I'm going to be hated by people, I want to be hated by everybody, not just loved by some. And so, so you know, taking the journalism thing properly, then just being equally equal to all teams. Um, I'm trying to be, yeah. What made you? I mean, the the your blog uh, Jakarta Casual is very, very big and very, very popular. Um, did that sort of happen more by accident or was it something that you planned? Oh, God, no. No, you can't plan that kind of thing, I don't think. Um, once I thought about the topic, it actually took me longer to think about the name. That, to me, was important, getting the right name, because I wanted it to be a name that was easy to remember, but also something that identified with the region I was in and was identified with something that's football. So I finally got a hit upon Jakarta Casual because obviously the Jakarta Casual movement in English football, I was on the outskirts of that and um, I was living on the outskirts of Jakarta. And then kind of the traffic was grew very, very slowly. I mean, I was getting contacted by, excuse me, ESPN and Star Sports from Singapore asking me questions and asking me about Indonesian football. And I was getting contacted by play, coaches and players and I was getting a traffic like 10 to 15 to 20 people hits a day. But it, then it started to expand and expand and expand. And um, I mean, it's kind of wound down a lot now. But at one stage, it was doing, I was getting quite a lot of traffic. Yeah, it's quite good fun. But it's not getting a bit too serious, I think. So. And as my, as my son grew, grew, got older and older, I found I had less time for the blog and more to make more time for him. Does he play football? Oh, God, yeah, you can't stop him. Even in, right. even, in the, even in the shutdown in Indonesia, he's out training two or three, t- three or four times a week by himself. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, how did you see Indonesian football develop and, and, and Thai football and, all, and the others that you write about in Support Your Local League? I mean, do you, how would you judge or assess their development or progress over the years that you've been watching? I don't think Indonesian football's developed that much at all, really. Um, it's always got the politics that's going to weigh it down. So there are, you know, it takes like two steps forwards, one step backwards, one step sideways. On In theory, you've got like the four biggest teams in Southeast Asia. You've got Persija, Persib, Persibaya and Arima. They should be the biggest clubs in Southeast Asia. They have history, they have heritage, they have support, they have fanaticism. They've got all the qualities you need for a big football club. But I think it's telling that the two biggest clubs actually in, in Southeast Asia one is Johor Darul Tazim from Malaysia, and the other one is um, Budidam in Thailand. Is that neither of them have got any history, neither of them have got much in the way of tradition. But what they've got is a man behind them with very, very, very deep pockets, who who is answerable to nobody. So basically, within the state of Johor, 
the crown prince can do what he wants, really. In the state of Buddy Ram, Nirin Chichov can pretty much do what he wants. And that makes it easier to build, develop an infrastructure for football um, because there answer was nobody. Whereas in Indonesia, Persib, Persija, Arama, Persibaya, they're restricted because they're in, they're in a pile of democracy where, you know, the local government said, no, we're not going to give you money. You've got to find your money from somewhere else. Um, and so, you know, they're much more, they, have a, they face a bigger challenge in that respect. So that's frustrating in a way, but also I think it's a good thing because, you know, there's, there's been no Manchester City type team yet in Indonesia where new money's come along and rewritten the rules. Um, I mean, JDT and, and Budiram basically are the epitome of modern football, um, owned by people who, can I say this? You know, you would not necessarily want to invite to dinner one day. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can say that. You're currently writing, as I said at the beginning, you're currently writing uh, another book um, uh, with Steve Darby. Um, how has that come about? And t- just give us a little preview of what it's about. I'd always fancy the idea of writing a book about Steve. Steve was a, a name I was familiar with from Australia, reading Australia Soccer Weekly. I knew him from, I knew him from that. And I knew him from seeing him as a pundit on TV on ESPN Star Sports. And then he contacted me and said, hi, I'm Steve, blah, 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 blah. And then we started communicating quite a bit and getting on quite well. And, you know, the more I got to know him, the more I thought, this guy's got a story worth telling. You know, if ever I get to the stage where I can be a writer, I'd like to try and tell a story because it's a multifaceted story. It's a, it's a guy who comes from the streets of Liverpool, from, you know, who's born in the shadow of the cop. and he went on to become a f- successful football coach, winning trophies in Australia, in Malaysia, in Singapore, became a national team coach of Thailand. And having worked in Southeast Asia for so long, I know that working there and managing there is very, very difficult. So, you know, this Liverpool lad was able to come to Southeast Asia and be very successful. So, you know, what was his secret? I'm sure that many people who have been to the region would like to know how to become a successful manager in the region because it's not easy. And I'm thinking that, you know, his upbringing played a part in that because um, he grew up in this small area around Anfield. He went to school in Anfield. Um, he, he played football next to Anfield. Everything he did was in a very, very small area. So he, he came from a very, very close-knit community. And by the time he started working in Southeast Asia, especially in Malaysia and Singapore, for example, where you have um, – the original the Singapore players are mostly Malay. They also have a traditional, very tight knit community, the Kampong thing. So I think that he instinctively understood that, understood the idea of the Kampong, the idea of um, self sufficiency in your area, of people relying on each other. I think he understood that in, in, instinctively, which helped him to create that bond with the players. And the players reacted to his understanding of them by becoming, you know, by trusting them straight away almost. So I think that was. Um, kind of interesting in the way he did that because, you know, you hear about many players, many famous big-name players who come to the region and they just don't make it. They can't handle it. But, you know, Steve's background, I think, was a major part of him being able to do that. That'll be a fascinating read, I'm sure. And it's a good point that you make. I mean, I remember when Graham Arnold, who, as you know, is now coach of the Socceroos, he got a gig in Japan and I think he only lasted five or six weeks, if that. (sighs) Um, certainly only three games in a season or something. Something I may have those numbers wrong, but it was he didn't last at all. Yeah. And you know that was 
um, because he was unable to adapt to what was a very different culture and um, society and all of those sorts of things. It's um, so it's fascinating read. Yeah, it is. And it's also the story of, I mean, you, you could, this is why we've talked, you know, I've asked you about how you found living in, what drew you to Southeast Asia because you've had the same experience. But what um, what I'm going to mention now, we, we've talked about before, and that is you were born in Libya as well and you moved a lot as a child. Yeah. So that's probably had an impact on how you've adapted and adopted to those different countries too. Yeah, I mean, you can't go in somewhere and start comparing because uh, if you start comparing, I mean, I, I, I kind of made a mistake when I first moved to Australia. I was like, yeah, but you shouldn't do this, you should do blah, 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 blah. And then, like, beyond the whinging pomp, it's like, what's the point? It's not going to change anything anyway. Just just go with the flow. Just, you know, it is what it is. I mean, I remember reading it for the first time, big big derby matches we had, Melbourne, Croatia, Sydney, Croatia. I'm like, that's not a derby. That's not a derby. <laughs> a derby's like Arsenal, Tottenham. You can't have Melbourne, that's not a bloody. And then um, once I started to think, it's a derby. Accept it. It's a derby. They think it's a derby. It's, a, it's enough, right? I kind of I started to enjoy it. So, you know, two of the best games I went to were the Maltese derbies. Um, I went to one in, in Sydney one time, and I went to the same. I went to the reverse game then in, in Melbourne, and they were great fun. You know, so by then I accepted the fact that a Maltese derby in Sydney and Melbourne is normal. I'm sorry, but it's normal. <laughs> Yeah, well, we have all sorts of things like that. We I don't know whether you've heard of the F3 derby in the A-League. Um, you know, it's I'm not, Gosford I'm not and Newcastle. I'm I'm yeah, well, of course, it's, it's different. It's not quite as colourful as the NSL, but um, it, it's, <laughs> we certainly do have, we do like to put a label on everything. It's quite fascinating. Yeah. Um, what have you said that, you know, you've, you're, you work and you're also writing, um, but if you a publisher, which of course would never be fair play publishing because you don't make books out of publishing football, money out of publishing football books, but <laughs> if a publisher offered you an unlimited advance, um, what would you want to write about? Ooh. I've had so many ideas for books um, over the years. I mean, a lot of them seem to revolve around trains for some reason. For example, I mean, I'd love to travel through the north of India following the path of the um, the first War of Independence or the mutiny whatever, in 1857. Um, another thing I'd like to do is maybe the travel through the Stans, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, watching football in that part of the world and um, looking at life there because, let's face it, who knows anything about that part of the world? Um, even though Kazakhstan is the seventh largest country in the world, and yet people, it's just a, it's a blank sheet to most people, and I think that would be um, quite an interesting one. You know, Uzbekistan is on the Silk Road, Silk Road. Um, so something that involved an expanse of travel and history and culture, which are things that fascinate me, I think. So I think maybe the stands. You could do that also following the Socceroos because, of course, a lot of those teams can end up in our in our World Cup qualifying group or Asian Cup qualifying group. That's right, so yeah. So you can actually combine yeah. it too. Um, and, 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 look, I'm a, I must emphasise too that what supports your local league is a, is a – um, combination of all those things. It's it's history, it's culture, it's football, um, and and some politics. And it's a it's a great read in a very colloquial and 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 um, conversational read. Um, I think it's just to set some, set some context because again, you know, Southeast Asian football people are like, huh? Um, so it's trying to set some context, trying to put the teams into context, trying to put the fans into context um, of the country of the country they're in. So I always believe that. Football is a reflection of the society it's in, isn't it? Of its whole society. So, 
you know, Singapore, a little bit orderly, whatever, on the surface, but underneath you're kind of like scratching your head off the time thinking, what the hell are they doing that for? And Indonesia, you just scratch your head all the time thinking, why? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're doing Indonesia is so, you know, it's the fourth largest country in the world, but it's also probably one of the most least understood, one of the least understood countries in the world. I think it's a great shame. You know, Indonesia will make the headlines when there's a tsunami or when there's a riot. Um, and you see stories from the media saying, oh, leave the country, it's too dangerous. And yet when Thailand has up these walls or whatever, the, the, the media coverage is so very, very different. You know, within a day or two, oh, come back to Thailand, it's good for, you know, come back to our beaches, blah, blah, blah. So I think that Indonesia suffers from a very, very negative press at the best of times. Um, no, I think <laughs> Australia is one of the worst offenders at that. You know, Australian, Australians, most of Australians' engagement with Indonesia is through Bali, and that's about it. Um, yeah, and yeah. It's, our, it's this big neighbour to our north. Yeah, I used to joke when I was in Australia. I used to tell my mates that um, if ever Indonesia invaded Darwin, they'd be in Alice Springs by Wednesday. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it, it is still very, very misunderstood, and um, you know, it makes sense to have closer ties between them. I'm not sure how that would work. Um, I know people have talked about having Australia enter the Suzuki Cup, but I think that would kill, kill the Suzuki Cup. I really do because it's the one thing where every Southeast Asian nation thinks they've got a chance of glory. Um, I'm not sure that Australian teams should be entering, you know, Perth have mentioned a few times. I mean, I'm, I'm reading in the 1990s, Perth Italia wanted to go and join a league in Asian, Asian, Asian league. I'm not sure that's the way to go either, but I think there needs to be some kind of greater connection between Australia and its neighbours to the north. I think that would benefit everybody. Yeah, it most certainly would. Um, on that note, we're going to, to finish for this week at Football Insiders and um, one of the th things that we ask everybody is what you're listening to at the moment because we're putting together a Football Insiders playlist. Um, you mentioned Cold Chisel but that may not be top of the pops for you at the moment. So what, what are you listening to? I'm not really listening to much at the moment. I'm, re I'm really sad. I'm actually focusing more on, is it Mark Boric's Australian Melbourne Soccer website and all these old <laughs> tabloids from the 1990s. I'm, I'm trying to get an angle on Tasmanian football in the 1980s and women's football in the 1990s from a book. So, unfortunately, that's where my um, if my free time, such as it is, lies at the moment. That and Steve Barbie's podcasts. Uh, well, in fact, you should then – Mark Boric has a, has a great website, but you should also read one of our books, Chronicles of Soccer in Australia, the foundation years 1859 to 1949, um, because it may well be able to assist you with some of the things that you're looking for. So there you go. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> well, when it comes to music, when it comes to the music, they clash never far away anyway. Right. Okay. All right. Well, um, Anthony, thank you very much for your time. It's lovely to have a chat with you, and we look forward to um, continuing to do so and and hearing from you with Steve's book when it's finished. Great talking to you, Benita. Have a nice day. Yeah. All the best. And that's it for another episode of Football Insiders. Um, we'll close today's session, as we always do, with a little excerpt from Anthony's choice of music. And we look forward to another podcast and chatting to you again next week when we hear from yet another Football Insider. Thank you for listening and stay safe. Thanks 
for listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fairplay Publishing, home of the Football Writers Festival. Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au.